Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I want to back up a week and read you an email that I received from a listener last Sunday. I read it on the air once, maybe twice, but I know I read it once. And there was a lot of reaction to this email. I'll tie all this together for you in a moment. So the email was fairly brief. It came from Annette, and she wrote, Question to all those people who don't want the vaccine. If they get COVID and are really sick, what do they expect from the healthcare system? Do they want to be bumped to the front of the line, demand to be treated first? A lot of people needing health care are currently being bumped for COVID patients. Let me read it again. Question to all these people who don't want the vaccine if they get COVID and are really sick, what do they expect from the healthcare system? Do they want to be bumped to the front of the line, demand to be treated first? A lot of people needing health care are currently being bumped for COVID patients. We know this story. Because we've spoken to, among others, the president of the Canadian Medical Association about cancer and heart surgeries, other elective surgeries being set aside because of the need for hospital space for COVID patients. So I started to receive emails saying, well, what's that all about? What's it it about? What was that email about? And I started to explain by way of return emails, before it got to be too complex, that for some period of time, there has been an accountability factor when it comes to healthcare, not only in Canada, but certainly here and other countries around the world. Many people are not aware of this. So there is an expectation that you will take care of your own health. There is an expectation that you will take care of your own health. So if, for example, you um, have a preference for a lot of alcohol, and you are on the road to destroying your liver, and you require a liver transplant, in the province of Ontario, for example, the Trillium Gift of Life Network as policy, and these are the, the folks who do such marvelous work by creating the possibility and the, uh, the option for, for organ transplantation, the Trillium Gift of Life Network as policy does not provide liver transplants for patients until they have stopped consuming alcohol for six months. Under that policy, two Ontario men died waiting for the six-month period to end. Now, that resulted in a court challenge. Meanwhile, Trillium, I'm told, is conducting a pilot project now during which assessments of candidates for liver transplantation will take place and their likelihood of a successful transplant with no return to alcohol consumption may allow for them to receive this transplantation, liver transplant, before the six-month expiry time. It's just a pilot project. But at the moment, the rule still is, if you require a liver transplant, you must not drink alcohol for six months. Now think about it. Uh, organ transplantation is, is difficult surgery. Organs do not necessarily come by very quickly. The match has to be perfect, and there's a lot involved, including commitment from the, from the patient, which takes me back to that original email, which questions people who want to be jumped and bumped to the front of the line. I hope this is all coming together for you, because I have some questions that are going to be coming your way about what personal responsibility for health is and what it isn't. And I'm not telling you that this is not about being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. 
All right. It's not about vaccination or deciding not to be vaccinated. But it is about what level of responsibility we have for our own health care. And you may say, well, Green, you're going to tell us that um, vaccination is part of that. Well, to me it is, but it doesn't necessarily have to be part of our discussion. Let me bring in my guest in, who is far more better at explaining all of this to, than I am, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, who's the MIDI professor of bioethics at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. His most recent book, Vaccination Ethics and Policy, um, was edited by Dr. Kaplan and uh, Jason Schwartz. And uh, Dr. Kaplan's been a guest on my program for 20-odd years. And I have to say, Dr. Kaplan, my favorite book title, you know which one it is, don't you? <laughs> I do. Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. <laughs> How are you? Very good. How are you? I, I'm great. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, a hot-button topic, for sure. Hot-button subject. So let me start with this question. Um, and just, I suppose, as, a, as an opening gambit here. Does the COVID pandemic present particular medical ethical issues and challenges? It does. It presents many. One of the most startling is a shortage of ICU resources, a shortage in emergency rooms. We've got situations in Canada. We had them uh, in the U.S. in New York, where I am a year ago. You can see them, obviously, in India. But uh, many, many other countries are facing a crunch. And traditionally, we take all comers into the ER. We take all comers in medicine uh, and get them stabilized. So to find out that you might have an overwhelmed emergency room outside of, say, a natural disaster, that's novel. Another unique issue is we have ways to prevent uh, problems from uh, one of the big demands on ERs and ICUs, COVID. Vaccination would help. Distancing, masking, isolation, taking responsibility to not infect yourself and others. But a lot of people won't do it. A lot of people are shying away from that. And I'd say a third sort of unique ethics challenge that comes screaming out of uh, COVID is when is it important to take care of your own health, but what do you owe to your neighbor? Remember, there are a lot of people with transplants, cancer, immune diseases, newborn yep. babies. They can't vaccinate. They won't build a response to that. So even when there is enough vaccine, if the rest of us don't do it, they're at risk. So are you going to do what you should to help your neighbor? Right. There's one other uh, aspect to all of this that has stayed with me since I first heard that it was becoming necessary. And that is there are doctors who are in the ICUs and in the ERs who have to make a decision because uh, based on the supplies they have available, oxygen and, and other life-saving uh, medical supplies, they have to make decisions about literally about who gets the, the, uh, the life-saving um, medical assistance and who doesn't. Right. And so let me tell you what happened here, just to give us all a template for thinking about this. Back maybe uh, last March of uh, a year ago, we had a crunch that was terrible in uh, the New York area. And hospitals began to talk about what to do. And we had many people trying to get in to emergency rooms. Some were COVID patients. Some might have been in car accidents or had other uh, terrible things happen to them. And the question was, do we triage them at the ER because the ERs were getting overwhelmed? And we decided not to do that 
but instead to try and admit as many people as possible to ICU care who needed it, and then see who responded well to ICU care after trying it for a few days, and see who did not, and then maybe remove those people to palliative care. How's that for a miserable decision? So we had situations where we thought, well, let's give everybody a go and stretch as far as we can. But in order to generate more resources, we're not going to try and, if you will, predict at the front end who's going to do well. We're going to see who does well after a period of time and then make the horrific decision to give up on some people. Dr. Kaplan, patients have how much personal responsibility for their health and how common is it internationally for the carrying out of life-saving surgical procedures like organ transplantation to depend on successfully abstaining from alcohol or perhaps tobacco for a given period? Not very common, Roy. And let me split the question this way. One issue is what should doctors, nurses, what should their stance be toward patients? And I'm going to call it broadly patients who sin. They don't do the right thing. They don't take care of themselves and so on. And then what should the policy be of the government or the authorities in terms of paying for things or controlling access to resources, which is an issue for you and me and the callers to decide. Historically, doctors and nurses have said, we don't care how you got sick. We don't care if you're a good guy or a bad guy. We don't care if you're a criminal or a victim. We're going to take care of you. Now, there may be a little bit of A in front of B if the policeman and the burglar show up at the same time with injuries, the cop might go first, but the burglar gets taken care of. And the general ethic is medicine doesn't really pay attention, if you will, to personal behavior because they don't know enough. You show up at the ER and, you know, we don't know whether you're a good or a bad person taking care of yourself or not. You can make some guesses, but historically it's been an ethic to just treat those in need. Governments, like in areas like transplant, tend to set rules a little differently. And they may say, unless you do A or B, you're not going to get care. Um, So partly, I'm going to answer this by saying you don't want doctors to do it, because I think it's better that they just treat whoever comes in front of them. I don't like what the British surgeon said. But if the National Health Service, through a political decision, said no, no smokers, Nobody gets uh, that care as a class. Well, maybe I wouldn't agree, but at least that's the appropriate place to do it. So having said that, let me quickly add one other thing. If I go through the hospital at NYU tomorrow morning, here's what I'm going to see. Suicide attempts, HIV, trauma from driving too fast, people with drinking issues, smoking issues, obesity issues, skiing injuries, I saw that mishandling of a gun in the home. In other words, if you want to save money on healthcare, if you really go after everybody who misbehaved or didn't act properly, you'll be okay because you'll clean the whole place out. (laughs) There is a lot of bad behavior filling up our hospital beds. Okay, I understand that and I thank you for that. But it's not unusual, is it, to have the kind of um, expectation and uh, expressed expectation that if you wish to have the organ transplant, you will not drink alcohol for six months. And you will demonstrably prove to us that you are not drinking alcohol for six months because there's another person who doesn't drink alcohol who requires a liver as well. So if we have to make a choice, we'll choose you as long as you can prove to us 
that you're not drinking for six right, months. And we're going to test you. And part of the argument for that is the data shows that people who keep drinking don't do as well as people who stop. So right. it isn't just punishment. It's partly this isn't going to work as well on you if you, stay, if you keep drinking as it would if you stopped. By the way, listeners, here's something to ponder. If you were at a frat party at a college and you drank to the point where you shut down your liver and were dying, you go to the head of the list. In other words, misuse of alcohol acutely all at once. And you can ask Trillium about this too. That would be an emergency. They would try to get you a transplant young person who drank, you know, nine bottles of liquor at a hazing or something or voluntarily. Well, uh, even as part of a suicide, we don't punish that. We actually just treat it. I want to read something to you. And this is from a news release from the book My Daughter, Retea Parsons by Glenn Canning. Retea Parsons was a gifted teenager with boundless curiosity and a love for family science and the natural world. But her life was derailed when she went to a neighbor's house, a friend's house, for a sleepover, and two of them dropped by at a neighbor's house where a group of boys were having a party. The next day, one of the boys circulated a photo on social media. It showed Retea half-naked with a boy up against her. She had no recollection of what had happened. For 17 months, Retea was shamed from one school to the next. Bullied by her peers, she was scorned by their parents and her community. No charges were laid by the RCMP. In comfortable suburban Nova Scotia, Retea spiraled into depression. Failed by her school, the police, and the mental health system, Retea attempted suicide on April 4, 2013. She died three days later. But her story didn't die with her. Retea's death shone a searing light on attitudes toward issues of consent and sexual assault. It also led to legislation on cyberbullying, a review of mental health services for teens, and an overhaul of how Canadian schools deal with cyber exploitation. Glenn Canning is Retea Parsons' father, and uh, he joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Glenn, it's it is so difficult to to read uh, what I just did, and that's the the news release. You've lived it every day. If we go back to first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Roy. If we go back to that that those months, those days in two thousand and thirteen. Um, 2012, 2013. Do you have the sense that parents really didn't know how vulnerable their kids, particularly their daughters, were, and maybe still are? Um, I, I think uh, at, at that time, I don't think a lot of people took the bullying uh, uh, that happened on social media seriously enough um, and, and didn't realize the impact it would start to have on, on, on young people, like the whole gang up thing, right? So I don't, I don't think, I think that, caught us all off guard including the police um where everyone's on twitter and instagram snapchat and all that and uh you know it doesn't take much to flood someone's inbox with an awful lot of pain so i i don't think i think that took us off guard and i think we've come quite a long way since then i I like to think that anyway well you've had a lot to do with that because you speak uh publicly regularly you've held people accountable you've held held systems accountable and things are changing finally did you expect, though, that the system, if you go back again to, to those those weeks and months, uh, did you expect the system, the police, the courts, the schools to be more engaged? And at what point did you have a sense that, hey, things aren't the way they should be here? 
Yeah, um, yeah, actually, uh, fairly early on. Um, but I, I, I kind of grew up with a military background. You know, my father was Air Force, and you have, uh, you know, I joined the, the military at a young age, too, when I was in cadets and everything. So you look up to authority figures thinking, you know, these are people in these positions uh, that you can trust. Right, and it was. It, it seemed pretty early on in Ray's case that uh, that was a bad judgment call on my part for uh, for some people. You know, there there was a lot of very good people, but but at that time, um, it was there was nothing I could really do differently. I don't think uh, um, than than what we did. We we did the right things. Um, the it didn't seem like it just went anywhere. Um, and I would say things were getting really bad um, once I took Ray to the mental health ward and and realized that. This was my last real option to try to get her, you know, some kind of help, and and that that just didn't work out too. So, but I, I do think well, we've come quite a long way, and I, and I think uh, it was a wake up call for a lot of systems, and I know a lot of uh, a lot of people have done a lot of very good work since Rita's death to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. Yeah, uh, tell us a bit about uh, about your daughter. There, sometimes you. You know, we know this. We know what what has happened. We know what what you've written in the book, and 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 how the system is changing and needs to change. But tell us a bit about about Ritay. Um, Ray was um, she she did uh, one one thing that, that that I always remember. I mean, she was from since she was a little girl. She had uh, um, and seemed to have a a way with nature and animals. Just um, seemed to be kind and gentle. Um, always wanting to be around them and things like that. It, it, it was just part of who she was. And um, as she got older, she wanted to get into veterinarian school. You know, she she had a hamster and a cat and a dog, and she just just loved animals. Um, she wanted to be a vet, of course, you know, because that's I guess what a lot of kids do like animals. But when she got even after, but after her assault, um, she wanted to do that since she was a little girl. And then after her assault, she wanted to be a lawyer. Um, she felt the system wasn't there for her and she wanted to fix it so that that's kind of the girl she would be um one of the the biggest things from my daughter's life that that i've taken away with from from her death especially was her her uh um her ability to forgive that that was um something i struggled with for a very very long time but she had that as, as a 16 year old girl she had uh the ability to forgive and and i've still struggled with it sometimes yeah, she was uh, yeah. she was shamed and bullied uh, uh, prior to the assault, and then afterwards, and uh, so the cumulative cumulative, uh, cumulative experience of feeling abandoned. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Glenn, but mm-hmm. the cumulative experience of feeling abandoned must be overwhelming, particularly if you're a young person. And, you've, and, and those people you look to for assistance and the authority figures we just you just mentioned aren't there for you. That really um, that really would be tremendously heavy weight to bear. What have, what did you learn? What have you learned about gender violence and misogyny in Canada since that time? And how are things changing? What have, what's been, what's been done to, to really make a significant change in the way uh, we, we, we really view the world and how we react to these situations? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think there's, there's more and more, um, effort being put into, um, trying to, have programs in place in schools and, and start to uh, um, engage with young people from a very young age, right? Um, I, I sometimes think high school is too late. 
Um, but but I think that if we, if we really want to make an impact and change, we need to get into like grades one, two, three, and four, where you just don't have to get really overload of information, but talk to people or young people about you know your your body, your boundaries, your space, um, what to do if someone makes you uncomfortable. You know, there's there's a lot of things we can do. We just don't seem to have an awful lot of willpower to do those things yet. And and I do see that changing a lot. I know um, I have seen. Uh, Roy, with with my own two eyes, that there are a lot of very very good young men in our communities um, who will who will take the lead, who will stand up, um, who will uh, do what they can do to address gender violence as well. Um, and that's one of the best things that I've seen since since Rite's death. I I never had that when I was a young man. No one ever talked about that. And now we have young guys who want to be a part of the solution. Yeah, that's big. That, that's it's major. Big, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it is, and it, it made me very proud to know that. Um, you know, you, they, sometimes you get an email or message from somebody who, who because of Rotea's story, they heard it. You know, they, they made an effort to make their school better. Um, you know, there's, there's people, groups in schools now who try to stand up for the bully kid, you know, and, and not in a bad way, not confrontational, but just encourage each other to be better um, and to be kind and have some empathy, right? So we have a lot that going on a lot more right now, I think, than we did uh, even eight years ago at Rotea's, when Rotea died. Yeah. Do you find that some people and maybe some systems are are defensive still and, and maybe uh, reluctant to, to make the changes that are necessary? Yeah, I think um, sometimes they are, but sometimes it comes right down to resource questions, and, and uh, which is why I think we need to, to better address, especially when it comes to youth mental health. Um, in, in a lot of places, you know, go to the emergency room, and what's set up there is more or less it seems like an afterthought where there's a child in crisis and, and, you know, um, you take them into emergency and there's, there's no one there for them to see. Um, so we do need a lot of work on that. I know there was a uh, Lexi, uh, Dakin died uh, a few weeks ago in New Brunswick after she, just a young girl went into an emergency room and yes. hours later basically was turned away with no help. And then, and then, um, she, she, she ended her life. Yeah. So this still happens, what happened to Ritea. It still does. It's still part of a lot of systems we have, but I think we're being very more aware of them. Um, and we are being more um, demanding that these systems improve, right? Um, but one thing that needs to improve right now is youth mental health. We, we do need a lot more resources on that. And I have no idea what the last year is going to be like with home education and uh, COVID. Well, I was about to say to you that uh, young people, as we've been hearing on this program for over a year now, and increasingly so, young people are facing greater and greater stresses and mental health issues because their lives have changed so dramatically. They don't have a lot of life experience to draw on, and COVID has separated them from their friends, from their school, from the lives they've known, and it's very, very difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, i I, I do hope that we have a, a plan going in place with our government just, uh, you know, to maybe start thinking about that, thinking ahead, the long-term effect that could have in, in terms of uh, resources where more people will start showing up at the hospital saying, I need help, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Glenn, what is the, uh, if, if there's a, the single most important factor to you that uh, that would come out of, the tragedy that you lived and uh, the loss of your daughter, the single most important s- success would be what? Um, 
convincing young men to see life differently or getting the system to be more responsive and not cover itself with, you know, they write a policy and then the policy covers the system, which yeah. which does nothing for the for the bully and cyberbully child. Yeah. I think um, I have uh, I have a lot of individual stories, really good stories, right? You know, um, individual accomplishments that, that, that people have uh, – have done, but but I, I'm not really accomplishes. I guess is the wrong word, but but I do know that it's. Um... Man, can you repeat that question for me, Roy? Yeah, I mean, what would be the most to you the most positive um, outcome of this tragedy in your life? You yeah. you know you've talked to Canadians now for for eight years. Your 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 daughter's name is known to everyone in this country and is known around the world. What would most honor her memory and what accomplishment, what changes would most significantly honor Rite's memory? I think right now, for me, when, when I look at everything that's happened since Rite died, the biggest thing um, that, that I have seen was, was um, a young man's group that formed in Ottawa. Um, and, and what I would like to see, too, is, is we have to have something because for young men, um, there's nothing for them to, to grow up and, and to be engaged with their communities. Um, you know, we have sports and academics and things, but I mean something that will say, you know, this is a group in your school and the pressures you have in your life, the, 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 the man image you're trying to live up to that can really damage you. It, it would be good to have something in school for young guys to go to where they can actually talk about their feelings. And you're saying they're quite receptive. They're very receptive to it. I, I've seen it. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was in one group one day and this young kid stood up and he was upset because he was uh, being bullied, right? And, and um, it was because he was uh, a gay kid. And, and to see the other guys just come over and give him a big group hug and tell him it's going to be okay and they'll watch out for him and stuff, I would never see something like that when I was growing up in school. Yeah, I didn't he wasn't either. even allowed to cry when I was growing up in school. No. Um, and I know it's there. I know the will's there. And I know that young men, we always... We are raising wonderful young men in, in Canada. We really, truly are. I wish, though, that as community leaders and, and adults, we spent more time engaging with them so that they will know and be able to have healthy relationships and know what that means. They will know what boundaries mean. Um, they will know what being a bystander and intervention looks like. Uh, it just seems like we could have those things, and it frustrates me sometimes because it wouldn't be hard to have programs like that for young men in our schools. And it would change an awful lot in our communities, too, um, especially if we gave them um, tools that they can use. So when they get angry over something, they know how to react with that without it hurting other people. Um, and there's a lot of other things, but I do know young guys are, are more than willing and more than happy to, to say, hey, what can I do to, to, to fix this in my community? That's great we we just got to have leadership for that. Glenn, the issue of, uh, of cyberbullying and uh, social media Rate was um, victimized by social media and through cyberbullying. Have you seen any significant and, uh, and and recognizable positive changes as far as that reality is concerned? Because that one crosses borders so easily. Yeah, it, it does. And, um, I, I think we've come quite a long way, actually, when it comes to bullying. Um, I, I think that we've, we've you know, what I would like to have happened to it was it became socially unacceptable, you know, like drinking and driving. Um, and I think that we're, we've got there, really. Um, there's still bullying, of course, you know, but there's not a lot of 
open, outright, mean bullying in workplaces or in schools or anything like that. I think we've done a lot to address that. And, and I, I guess people start to realize now the harms of it too, right? Um, it, it's a pretty toxic thing. So we've come a long way with that. And I think we've given the, the police some of the tools they need to, to address it if, it if it comes to somebody needing their help. Yeah. Would you share a moment with us that you've had, uh, that you experienced while you were out uh, speaking to community groups and associations, individuals, parents, uh, young men, young women, something that just stands out? Something that stands out. Um, one of the things that stood out to me very early on when I started doing this was that there is a girl or a boy who's in my daughter's situation in every single high school. You, you just feel it. There's always a story there of, of, of somebody in a lot of pain. And it's not an isolated thing, and it could be anybody's kid from any kind of background whatsoever. Um, in the digital age, it doesn't take much for a kid to make a mistake that, that could just crush them socially, right? Um, I've had teenagers come up to me and, and tell me that they tried to end their life. And I was the very first person they've told, um, which highlights to me how important it is to have conversations going on with your children in your home about mental health all the time. You know, how are they doing, really, really doing, right? Uh, it's important because there's things that kids just don't tell parents, um, which leads me to know, too, it's also very important that you have a very trusting relationship with your child. And if they come to you with any kind of problem around bullying or cyberbullying at all, please don't make it so that they feel they're being punished or that they're part of the problem. Because if you do that, the bullying may slow down for a bit, but they'll know if it speeds up again not to tell you. And you don't want your child in a, in a situation where if they're being bullied, they can't tell their mom or dad because they're worried everything will get worse. Those yeah. are some things that I've learned. Um, but I have, there's other stories too, you know, there's stories of uh, the group of guys in Ottawa who were in the newspaper because they helped a woman out on the street who was being accosted by a man. Uh, I like stuff like that. that yeah. that's, those are good stories to have. And, and, and that's what it is. It, it just takes us to just stand up and use what we have and our, our strengths to the best that we can to help other people. Well, Glenn, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, out of the sorrow and out of the loss, um, you have, uh, you're helping build a better um, generation of young people and affecting their parents, and it'll all be, all be for the more positive and in Rattay's memory. The ugliness and the violence of anti-Semitism is on the rise in Canada and globally. I mean, I think it was about two or three years ago I read a major piece about how many uh, French Jews were leaving their country of birth, their homeland for Israel or other parts of the world because they no longer felt safe in, uh, in France. Recently in Canada, we have seen the, uh, the rise in anti-Semitism, and it's ugly, and it's just intolerable. You know, while a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas takes effect, the issue of threats and attacks on Canada's Jewish population have to be addressed and have to be addressed effectively and strongly. Michael Mostyn is the CEO of B'nai B'rith Canada. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? I'm fine, Roy. Good to talk to you this afternoon. Yeah, good to talk to you. Uh, Anti-Semitism, is it at a is it at a crisis level, not only in Canada, but internationally? I think these are extremely challenging times, Roy. And uh, every conflict that we see that's taking place in Israel, we always see blowback 
in Jewish communities all the way around the world. That has been no different this time around in Germany, in France, in the United States, and in Canada. But in Canada, I can tell you, it has a very different feel than it ever has in the past. There are people questioning their future or their children's future or their grandchildren's future in this country. I have never seen that before. And this is not just one or two or three people. These are many people in Jewish communities across this country because they are quite frankly shocked about what they've seen on the streets. Um, the fact that there have been individuals driving around with Palestinian flags going into Jewish neighborhoods in Montreal, in Edmonton, in Thornhill, following anti-Israel rallies and asking where the Jews are, um, threatening people on the streets. Um, this should be completely unacceptable, but what we've seen is an escalation, unfortunately, that's been taking place over a period of time. And um, uh, this is this is what we see happening. So so we're working to, you know, let people know the, that, you know, of, of course, the threat overall of violence is low. But while these protests are continuing, uh, things are uh, getting to a level we have never seen before. And the community is quite rightly um, frightened with with where this is going. Michael, I um, I have seen the display of uh, of Nazi flags in this country on, on video and and outside Canada as well. And I, I think back, it doesn't seem that long ago that such a situation never would have been tolerated. There would have been, that would have been uh, a police presence, a police intervention, and it would have been swift and it would have dealt, you know, would have been in the courts and it would have been dealt with. I saw very little of, uh, of in the, in the way of intervention. Am I, did I miss something or is it, or am I observing things properly, correctly, not properly, but correctly? I, I, I don't. I don't think you missed anything, Roy. I, and and um, we, and we didn't see a lot of media pickup overall on this either. Why is that? Um, well, I don't think it t it meets the typical narrative of of when we're expecting and how we're expecting to see the use of na Nazi symbolism and references to Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is infamous, of course for putting forward a plan and executing that plan uh, to murder the Jewish community worldwide, to commit a genocide. That's what the Nazis were all about. And many of us have been told that this is only coming from right-wing extremists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And that is predominantly um, the, the adherents and followers of, of Nazi ideology today. But when we've been seeing these come out from anti-Israel extremist rallies, and the anti-Semitism that's been emanating from it. Well, Hitler is still uh, thought of and regarded very highly in, in certain parts of the world today. And, um, and so we shouldn't let ideology get in the way of the fact that there are those that um, are, are praising him and, and, and thinking that it was a great idea to wipe out these Jews. And, and that's pulling the mask away from what's really going on here. Of course, there was a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. A ceasefire, thankfully, has just been reached. We'll see what happens there. But why should there be blowback? Why should there be violence and harassments and threats of violence against individual Jews living in other countries outside of Israel? Um, based on a geopolitic con geopolitical conflict that's you know thousands of miles away or kilometers away, this is Canada. But why is that taking place in blowback against individual Jews? The answer is anti-Semitism. 
And um, this is an uncomfortable reality in multicultural Canada that we need to address before it gets too late. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism is something well, that, that that really can 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 get get into the heart of democracy and 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 destroy yeah. democracy. Yeah, and Michael, just go back to what you said at the beginning. You have families of uh, Canadian Jewish families saying they don't know whether the the future is in this country for their children. And I, I'm guessing we're talking about multi-generational families in many cases where they just don't feel viscerally that that they can trust the environment in Canada to be there f for their kids. And that just mirrors, again, what I heard and what I read and what I saw on video come out of France. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and France, the situation in France today did not happen overnight. Unfortunately, um, authorities had their heads in the sand for a long time. And then we had something like the issue of Sarah Halimi come out, where, you know, you had a, a, a Jewish woman who was targeted um, with, you know, anti-Semitic uh, epithets. She was tortured, murdered, thrown over the, a, a balcony, and no real justice for her. And that it's caused outrage now in France and, and around the world. But when you allow hatred to stew uh, over a period of time, you can't put that genie back into the bottle again. And, and that's not a place that that we want to see Canada get to what at do, no what point do you... in time. And that's, and that's why our, it's not enough to just condemn anti-Semitism today for our authorities and for our police and maybe issue a couple of tickets after the, after the fact. We have to stand up and say, when as we're seeing it in real time, there will be no sanction for this in our country. We will not allow for any identifiable group in this country or any individuals to be singled out for who they are, and we are gonna push back hard against that no matter where that threat is coming from. Do you sense, do you feel, do you witness an appropriate pushback, an appropriate support for the Jewish community in this country from federal and provincial politicians? Never mind the, uh, the political stripes, I don't care about that. Right. Uh, I, I care about the fact that that, that we should be seeing uh, an absolute lack of tolerance for anti-Semitism in this country. I mean, I, I hear the uh, I hear the words. I'm not sure what's behind the words. Am I being unfair? Uh, I don't think you're being unfair, Roy. Um, you know, you just played. You started off your segment with with words from our prime minister. He came out uh, at the end of last week, very very strong. You know, support for the for the Jewish community standing strong against anti-Semitism. We've seen the same come out from Aaron O'Toole in the Conservative Party. We've seen such from individual members of Parliament. The NDP with uh, Jagmeet Singh, he came out during all of this. I'm actually not aware of uh, of a statement of support from the federal NDP um, over the last week or two uh, dealing with these issues. And in fact, he came out and, and announced that that there's going to be um, they'd like to see policy. Um, calling on an arms ban with Israel, while Israel was, of course, facing um, indiscriminate rocket fire from the Hamas terrorist group. And some of those rockets, of course, um, murdered Palestinian lives when they fell short uh, of their target and landed in Gaza. So, um, you know, I don't personally feel that that's an appropriate approach. But, but at the end of the day, um, this is also a municipal issue. Um, and we've seen different municipal jurisdictions across Canada handle these anti-Israel extremist rallies in very different ways. In Halifax, uh, police went with municipal um, support, elected support, I, I would presume. Um, they got an injunction and they shut that rally down. 
And and after it was shut down, and there were some people that still showed up, a very few amount of people, they find them, they disperse them, they let it go. Michael, yet, in, yes, is there is there a difference? I'm just looking at emails that I'm receiving here. Yeah, sure. Uh, is there a, a difference between an anti-Israel rally and anti-Semitism on the streets against Canadian Jews? Yeah, it's an excellent question, um, and and of course there are distinctions. Uh, in a free and democratic society, everybody should have the right to express their political opinion and expression, and everybody has their own right. Somebody wants to be more supportive of Israel or more supportive of the Palestinian cause, people should have the right to argue that out in a civil uh, manner. Um, there's a couple of complicating factors, of course. We're in COVID-19. Um, should cities be allowing super spreader events when everybody else is expected to to make these very difficult sacrifices and and, and stay home um, during the lockdown? Well, I would argue that illegal rallies of this sort should not be allowed for that reason alone. Yeah. But aside from that, but aside from that, when 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 we hear at rallies not just expressions of support for one side or another of a, of a political dispute overseas. But when we hear calls of dirty Jews, when we hear support for terrorism, the reciting of, of, of poems that support terrorism, and that's what we were hearing. So we had in Toronto, in the city of Toronto, thousands of people showing up in a rally, and there were poems recited, not in English, but in Arabic, with police standing and listening to it, and I don't believe that they would have understood a word of what they were hearing. Michael, I want to ask you about uh, online issues and what's going on in the schools, but first, uh, just some numbers. And numbers can sometimes just hide what the real problem is, but in this case, I don't think so. The executive summary of the audit that B'nai B'rith did on um, anti-Semitism in Canada, 2,610 recorded incidents, third consecutive year in uh, which the plateau of 10th, 2000 was exceeded. Also, 2020 was the fifth consecutive record-setting year for anti-Semitism in this country, an 18.3% increase of recorded anti-Semitic incidents compared to 2019, and more than seven anti-Semitic incidents occurred every day in 2020. That tells me that uh, the people who are supposed to be um, standing up for all communities in this country aren't doing what they should be doing, particularly when it comes to standing up for the Jewish community. Again, am I misunderstanding things here? Well, I think it, the reason why the neighborhood has been putting this audit out since 1982 is to be able to show fairly the trend lines that we're seeing in society. Because, of course, any audit of, of, of any hate-based activities is a snapshot of what we're seeing. Yeah, but we can course. see... We can see the growth and what we've seen is, as you mentioned, Roy, that for the last three years, we've been over 2000 incidents, we've been seeing a consecutive growth, and we see now a baseline of anti-Semitic behaviors uh, in Canada. And by the way, I should mention too, that the total number of violent incidents that we saw last year in 2020 has already been exceeded in the month of May alone because of these anti-Israel extremist rallies that we've been uh, seeing. Uh, so uh, this is a very serious problem. And the neighborhood has been asking for years for a national action plan uh, to deal with the situation. There are national action plans in other countries, uh, such as Norway. Um, and, um, and we think that there has to be a long-term strategic uh, way to, to, to go about and deal with this and start tamping, tamping this down. What's it like? What are you hearing about kids in school? What's it like for for Jewish kids 
and and maybe this isn't fair. Maybe this is just too big an arena to for me to wade into. But I will anyway. What's it like for Jewish kids in school? And what's what's the situation like online social media? Okay, so so in school, I, I think it, it it depends. First of all, if you're talking like elementary high schools versus universities, mm-hmm. um, universities, uh, we hear from students all of the time, as as all of the you know the, the Jewish groups involved with this do, and um, oftentimes um, they feel the singling out because of um, being viewed as a Zionist or supporter of Israel. There is so much anti-Israel. Um, a bias uh, w- within academia that it, it actually is viewed as a very serious problem by the Jewish community, and uh, and individuals are are afraid actually of letting their own uh, beliefs known or even showing that they're Jewish because they feel that it could impact negatively impact um, their own academic careers uh, nowadays. Um, uh, the um, uh, the Toronto District School Board um, just over the weekend there was an article written they, they were exposed there was a, a manual that was put out uh, talking about the Israeli Palestinian conflict completely one sided and in fact that justified um, it, one article within there justified uh, suicide bombings uh, against Jews and against Israelis that's the sort of material that's being put out by how much of, how much of that is there Michael. How much material like that yeah, is there? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that we have reports from teachers, let alone forget about the students for a second, teachers that feel very uncomfortable because the modern conceptualization um, that's that's being brought in um, uh, to, to the educational system, they're talking a lot about um, uh, white supremacy and racism and Jews, unfortunately, are being thought of as white folk. Um, within educational um, uh, circles. So let me ask and, you. The, let me and, ask and, you. And, yet, and yet Jews are targeted by white supremacists just as much as anybody else. Yeah. One more quick question. Sure. Are you concerned that you're going to be seeing Canadian Jews leaving this country? Uh, maybe not in the number, numbers like have are happening in France, but are you concerned you'll see numbers of Canadian Jews saying we're, we're, we're leaving now? Uh, yeah, I, I am concerned that if we don't see um, some some uh, political leadership on this, that we will see that in All the right. future. Because right. if we if we see violence, why shouldn't people leave? People should leave if if they see violent situations. Here we are chasing through the final days of May, and starting to feel like perhaps we're coming, uh, depending on where you are in this country, coming out of the tunnel, as it were. But did we make some significant missteps? that we didn't need to make. And I was just thinking the other day about SARS. 2003, SARS was the pandemic, and it uh, it had an effect on this country, a significant effect. Um, and there were lessons that were learned. So did we take advantage of those lessons? Did we maximize what we, in fact, learned? And could we have progressed far more quickly through this uh, COVID pandemic had we taken advantage of what we learned in 2003 and beyond. Dr. Ronald St. John, 35 years in public health in Canada, joins us, Public Health Agency of Canada, and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, former World Health Organization director for the Americas, also the first director of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Health Agency of Canada, founder of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, also known as GFIN, and he was the national manager for Canada's response to SARS. Dr. St. John, good to have you back in the program. How are you, sir? Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I just got to thinking about SARS and what we learned and what we could have put in place or maybe what we should have put in place. And I thought of you and and here we are. Were there lessons learned 
were there plans made that would have served us post-SARS, would have served us as soon as we knew we were in a pandemic with COVID? Uh, yeah, we... Well, let, let me start by saying it's a little bit difficult to, to generalize some of the lessons from SARS 2003 to now, uh, in part because SARS 2003 was a very localized area, mostly Toronto and Vancouver. And, um, and it was unique in a way because it was less transmissible, and it was focused uh, it was especially in hospitals. Hospitals became the hot spot for the transmission of, uh, of SARS in 2003. Uh, now, it was not a national uh, epidemic such as we have today, so that, it makes it a little difficult. Still, there were some lessons learned that, that we could have reflected on at the present time. And uh, let me start with one of the big, big ones, which is communication with the public. Uh, communication of what science can tell us and communication with what's going on at the time. And to illustrate, in Toronto, uh, during the height of the SARS, there were three different spokespersons for SARS, and they were basically saying slightly different, somewhat different things. At one point, one of them said the epidemic was over, and it wasn't, um, and that led to confusion uh, in the population. And we've had some of that uh, uh, here with, uh, with SARS uh, 2021. Uh, communicating mixed messages to the public uh, is, is a great way to lose the trust of the public in the science and in, the, and in following the measures you'd like them to do. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that, that has, in fact, taken place. Now, you said something to me some time ago, which I... I've, I've, I wrote down, and I, I'm going to. It's a keeper for me. Uh, when it comes to emergency work, uh, and I'll apply it here. You said to me, lessons learned aren't learned until they're implemented. Yes, yes. Um, so there are uh, a lot. There was a. <laughs> I like to call it a, a post SARS 2003 epidemic of national commissions of inquiry. <laughs> There were multiple um, commissions that were struck to take a look at the response to SARS 2003, and they came up with recommendations. Some of them, like the establishment of the Public Health Agency of Canada, were actually implemented, but some fell by the wayside. The uh, different levels of government have different responsibilities, we find out on a regular basis. But that doesn't stop governments from clashing with one another over the same issue or trying to, or hinting that, hey, we would do a better job than you if we were in charge of what you're in charge of because look at how well we're doing. And then the other level of government turns around and takes a run at uh, the first level of government. And again, it does nothing to, uh, to cement any sense of public confidence. At the federal level, at the federal level, and then I'll ask you about the provincial level, but at the federal level, was there deterioration of systems that were put in place when you were active, very active, with Public Health Agency of Canada uh, and, uh, and, and were the national manager for the response to SARS and founded the Global Public Health Intelligence Network? Yes, I believe that to be the case. There were a couple of things. Uh, following SARS, we realized that we needed to have um, a, a really a national, a national framework for how we would respond 
to um, a large-scale epidemic that went beyond just one city or two cities. Uh, and we we sat down with the national uh, with the provinces and territories to develop a national uh, health, uh, response uh, framework. Um, at that time, the there were two kinds of emergency responses in the province. Uh, one had to do with natural uh, disasters, uh, the flooding in the spring and the forest fires and so forth. These were emergency directors that did, didn't do anything with health. And then on the other side, there were some health uh, emergency responders who didn't do anything with respect to the health aspects of natural hazards. And it was clear that we had to bring these together under a single framework. And we, so we set up this framework for uh, the emergency response preparedness and response for uh, health and, uh, and natural disasters. And we established an annual conference where uh, we would all bring all the different groups together uh, and go over plans and projects and uh, problem areas and so forth. For example, uh, one of the sticky points was that each province and territories had different data systems uh, and that were not compatible. So you it was very difficult to get uh, consolidated data across the country when each province had a different uh, uh, a different um, uh, system for data recording. Um, there were things discussed such as uh, movement of medical personnel across provincial borders because medical personnel are licensed by province, not by the federal government. And uh, during SARS 2003, uh, when uh, a lot of healthcare workers in the hospitals in Toronto were actually affected and sick and couldn't work, uh, we we had great difficulty. We couldn't bring uh, medical personnel from other provinces. Um, and some of the lessons learned there were some provinces uh, passed legislation so that they could do an emergency licensing of people from one, one province to another. Um, but I, there's, there's still an issue when you try to say, uh, I need I need 50 doctors more in province X, and the province next to you says, "Well, I'm I'm tied up in my own epidemic. Uh, I'm I can't really spare my people, and so where do they come from?" So we do have hospital surge problems that we had in 2003. We still face some of these problems uh, today. 18 years later. Yes. Would we? Potentially, maybe I can remove potentially, would we be in better shape than we are today? Would we have progressed through this situation, through this pandemic, more efficiently, more effectively, if, if only uh, emotionally, and uh, I may want to remove emotionally, would we, would we have progressed better, more equitably, more uh, intelligently, had we used all the information we had, all the information that was compiled, all the systems that were put to, put in place are ready to be exercised. Uh, had we done that in, in in 2020, and I understand from the studio crew, thank you guys, the World Health Organization announced the pandemic on the 11th of March of last year. Yes. Had we done what we knew we could do, had we enacted the plans that had been put in place, would we even be in a better place now, Dr. St. John? Well, it's, it's, it's always fun to do a little hindsight. <laughs> Um, but we had the options, the, right? I mean, we had the options. It was there waiting for us. It had been studied and yeah. written out and discussed yeah. and debated and, de and decided on. Yeah, I think so because, um, you know, the, it's, it's kind of a, 
uh, a, a thing that repeats itself over and over again. When there is an emergency situation, governments are really quick to react and find funding and, and implement stuff to do. When there is no emergency, uh, or between the emergencies, we, we call that the preparedness time. And that's when you should, should uh, train people and make plans and uh, do simulations so you test your plans. And uh, what happens is, is governments tend to shy away from investment when nothing is happening. But really, something should be happening, should be preparedness. Yeah. And uh, so the, the budgets uh, t- tend to be shifted to other priorities when nothing's happened. And as a result, for example, the budget for GFIN uh, was deteriorating. The, the, the budget for, well, there were very few simulations conducted at the federal level. I can't speak to any simulations at the provincial level, but it's very difficult to convince uh, budget managers that you have to invest money in in preparing people uh, for for how for and training them on, on how to react when there is a, a, a tense situation and a crisis. Uh, there's no substitute for preparedness. You get a much more efficient response when you do preparedness. And you got you have to do it across jurisdictions, so that one jurisdiction can work and function effectively with the next jurisdiction. Yeah. So I think there's been a, there's a big lack of uh, a follow up with that kind of uh, effort. We, we seem to be really skilled at that in this country um, to uh, to not work as cooperatively as we could and as we should. Just look at the inter- interprovincial trade barriers that we managed to throw up against one another. It's it's easier to deal with a country that's three thousand miles away than than it is with a province that's two inches away from you. Well, by by constitution, health is a provincial uh, matter. Uh, right, I meant just in general terms. Yeah, I mean, the federal government has limited authority. Yeah, uh, it has authority over the borders, but and it has authority with the quarantine act, but it has uh, very little uh, authority in the provinces, which means that there has to be federal leadership. Uh, in the absence of legislation, to get uh, all the provinces and territories to work together, and uh, that means having having mechanisms where, for example, we had established a council for the deputy ministers of the provinces. We used to have annual meetings. I don't know if that still goes on, and we brought emergency planning and preparedness issues to that deputy ministers council for uh, for some uh, resolution. Um, so you have to work across jurisdictions and, and plan your simulations across jurisdictions. And perhaps one of the things we need to look at uh, here in Canada now is uh, kind of a health equivalent of the Emergencies Act so that the, there can be clear federal leadership across, across the country because it becomes, like, like SARS-2021, becomes an issue all the way across the country. Right. So we heard the Premier of Ontario, um, Dr. St. John, we talked about the federal government's involvement with the, uh, with, with, with the pandemic. What about the provinces? Have the provinces done uh, their job? Have they been as effective as they might have been? Has the cooperation between the provinces and the federal government been what it should be? Well, to, to me it's ironic that, that right now, uh, after three waves of, um, of uh, COVID in Ontario, uh, the case is coming down dramatically. Uh, we're on the right track. And right next door in Manitoba, the cases are skyrocketing. Uh, I mean, 
the same control measures in Ontario and other provinces and all across the country, the public health measures of mask wearing, distancing, and so forth, when applied uh, vigorously, stop the virus. Uh, and, of course, vaccination is going to be an added tool that, that really is going to put the, put the cap on the virus. But uh, the fact that one province says, oh, well, let's, we don't need to do this, we don't need to do that, and then they pay a price with the, with the cases going up, while the other province is saying, oh, we're going to go into lockdown. The, 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 the discoordination, you know, the lack of coordination across the country is, is, is a little bit uh, disconcerting for sure. Yeah, it's it's disturbing because uh, someone said earlier on the program, and and I agree with the with the position there should be a, a national strategy as far as what we do is concerned. It's whether it's reopening or should have been a national strategy that we all understood and we all sort of heading in the same direction, as opposed to you go this way, you go this. You men, what was that old line? You men follow him, you men follow him, and you the rest of you men follow me. It was just like an old line from an old western movie, but. It, it just seemed that way. It seemed like there was very little in the way of, of cohesive thinking going on, in my view. Yeah, uh, yeah, I certainly agree. Um, it's it's unfortunate, uh, really, that, that we don't have a, a way of. Uh, well, let me say this: one of the one of the problems with, uh, with uh, across the country is that when when the the political level decides to impose certain restrictions because the cases have reached a certain level. Uh, they say, we're going to put these, pr- these procedures in place until May 21st or May 30th or June 2nd or whatever the date is, right. and the public is left wondering, well, then what happens? Exactly. Uh, did, did you tell uh, the virus? What would be ideal and I have, is, is to have across the country a common goal, saying you put these measures in place, until you're, the new number of cases, the new the number of new cases of COVID per day right. is X, yeah, a hundred cases or two hundred cases. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.